Welcome to the September and October 2019 edition of the Rehab Cast from the Archives of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. I'm your host, Ford Vox. Now, on today's edition, we're going to be talking with Crichton University's Robert Sandstrom, who in the September issue details the dramatic impacts of the passage of the Affordable Care Act on the use of outpatient physical therapy. And from the October issue, Daphne Nascimento and her colleagues from Universidad Ciudad de Sao Paulo scrutinize the rampant spin and selective reporting in scientific abstracts for low back pain trials. We have a problem and Dr. Nascimento has some great insights into how we can get out of it. So joining us now on the Rehab Cast is Dr. Robert Sandstrom. Dr. Sandstrom uh, is with Crichton University, where he's a professor at the School of Pharmacy and Health Professions. He has published in the archives on increased utilization of ambulatory occupational therapy and physical therapy after Medicaid expansion. Dr. Sandstrom, thanks for joining us on the Rehabcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, I really appreciate it. And so I see you're a PT and a PhD. If you could tell us a little bit about your your background, uh, both as a clinician and, and a researcher, and uh, and what all you do at Creighton. Okay, I'm a professor in the Department of Physical Therapy at Creighton, and I also I'm a faculty associate in the Center for Health Services Research and Patient Safety. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, basically, my clinical background is a physical therapist. I was a neurologic physical therapist for about 20 years, but I've been in the academic world for about 23 years now. And uh, among the teaching responsibilities I do have is I do teach a health services course uh, Mm. for physical therapists, and uh, I have done some writing in this area in the past. Yeah, I see some uh, work uh, along these lines and kind of about uh, some of the nature of PT practice and so forth. And there's a paper that I wanted to mention that you published uh, a couple of years prior to this one uh, as well that that seems relevant, too, about the fact that there is some kind of... um, baseline growth and uh, the use of physical and occupational therapy services. Now, this this paper obviously centers on, you know, this major systemic change to our healthcare system, which we're going to delve into a little bit and, and, and how uh, you've been able to determine that it's increasing utilization. But it does look like from your earlier work, and I'm referencing your, your paper uh, entitled um, Utilization of Ambulatory Physical Therapy and Occupational Therapy by the U.S. Population uh, 2009 through 13. Um, which you published uh, previously indicates that there that there already is some kind of increasing popularization or just kind of baseline growth in the use of these services outpatient. Can you tell us about about that dynamic and what's going on there? Sure, there has been for the really since uh, at least I've been studying it since 2000 uh, a tremendous growth in the utilization of ambulatory therapy services by the U.S. population. In about the year 2000, about a little bit under 2% of the United States population would have had a visit to an ambulatory clinic for physical therapy or occupational therapy. And current estimates of uh, of uh, utilization are about that 4.5% of the U.S. population Mm. has a visit each year. So, and, and, and there are certain popu- certain groups, subpopulations, for example, people over age 65, where that approach is almost 10% of wow. the group. So um, we've seen a tremendous growth in the utilization of therapy services on the ambulatory side in the last 15 to 20 years. How does that compare to what, what's seen in other Western countries? Well, I don't have a lot of information or comp- there's not a lot of comparative data that I know of that, um, mm. that we can really look at up Western countries, but I think we've 
we've seen, I think, with the growth in the access or at least the utilization of or the availability of therapy clinics in the ambulatory settings, we've seen a concomitant growth in the utilization of those services. And, you know, certainly one can speculate, I mean, as, as you talk about in this, this paper, uh, you know, the, the aging population and so forth, that that's only destined to expand. Certainly as we're trying to clamp down on opioid prescriptions and other things for general musculoskeletal painful conditions and arthritis and that type of thing, one, one would expect uh, uh, the use of more therapy services to compensate. Correct. Now, um, with um, uh, the idea of uh, Medicaid expansion and the ACA, it's important, I guess, for people to remember or recollect, or maybe they're already experiencing it for themselves out there, but um, that the Affordable Care Act is more than just about what's on the exchanges and whether you can uh, happen to be able to be in a state where uh, you can access uh, one of those and whether you fit the, the income criteria and that type of thing. It really does affect everyone's access uh, to insurance, regardless of kind of what your uh, pre-existing conditions are and, you know, kids staying up on their parents' insurance up to 26 and so forth. So um, it uh, it would be expected to have a dramatic um, effect on the healthcare system and folks' uh, access. And it seems like that's, that's the case. Now, you have, you're looking at... Um, the Medicaid population here, but the the outside Medicaid population comes up here a little bit as well. I guess let's start at the beginning. How come you? Why did you decide to uh, to do this paper? You talk about the fact that it's nobody had done it, so perhaps that's probably one of the chief reasons. Um, but some of the background of, of this, the idea for this paper. Well, I I, uh, I have an interest in uh, public programs and the effect of insurance on access and utilization of therapy services. I mm -hmm. published a paper a couple of years ago looking at uh, trying to understand if there are disparities in access or utilization uh, for therapy services and uh, was able to demonstrate a disparity um, uh, in access to therapy services for, for minority populations. So that really was sort of the genesis of this paper. And mm -hmm. I began to think about, uh, and I think, what a natural experiment, which I think was the reason I really started to look at this more in, in, in depth was uh, that since the Medicaid expansion uh, was implemented on January 1st and it aligned with this, my utilization of this uh, data set, the medical expenditure survey, the panel survey, um, that allowed me to um, set up an, an experimental design that I thought was at least originally was just going to be, this, and it still is part of the study, a descriptive report of uh, the utilization of therapy services by that by this Medicaid group. And so you, you mentioned uh, the, the data source that you're using. It's this medical expenditure panel survey. W what is that? How do people get access to that? What all does it contain? Okay, the medical expenditure panel survey is a subset of the National Health Interview Survey. It's conducted by the Agency for Healthcare Quality and Research, ARC, um, and they produce uh, a set of data, uh, a set of data sets, I guess, annually. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a very large survey, approximately thirteen thousand to fourteen thousand United States households. Re the survey roughly thirty-five to thirty-seven thousand Americans each year in the civilian, non-institutionalized population about their utilization of many, many health services, uh, but mm -hmm. does include ambulatory, uh, physical therapy, and occupational therapy. And so from this survey, we can um, create or 
uh, make population estimates about the utilization of these healthcare services. And you mentioned, of course, this is a natural experiment, which, yeah, a great type of experiment when some like big new variable comes along, such, such as this particular aspect of uh, health reform. And um, so you're able to compare changes. You found some um, fairly dramatic ones, as, as we'll talk about. Um, uh, I guess, how come uh, did you decide to look at both physical and occupational therapy versus just one one of those disciplines or speech therapy or any anything else? Why, why PT and OT together? Well, that uh, points up, I guess, one of the limitations of uh, using these, uh, of using, doing secondary data analysis on these large um, uh, community-based surveys in that that's how the data is reported. So the mm. report is reported in the survey as both ambulatory, occupational, and physical therapy combined. And so this study used the public use data files, which are available online at the ARC website for researchers um, at no cost. Uh, mm-hmm. And so, but that does limit me to not being able to uh, uh, separate out therapy disciplines like speech therapy versus occupational therapy or physical therapy individually. But that, I guess, you, to your knowledge, that data is in there somewhere if somebody wanted to figure out how to get speech therapy out of it, or is it just not asked in particular? Yeah, you could, you could do, yeah, you can, the data is in there, but it would require uh, a specialized data set, let's put it that way. Yeah. I see. And then um, uh, part of your, your analysis, uh, at least the statistical approach, you're, you're utilizing this uh, differences, uh, difference in the differences approach uh, in, in layman's terms. Uh, what does that mean? Well, this is an econometric approach, and this, I guess, I have to thank the reviewers of the archives. Um, mm-hmm. The original study design uh, that I had was just a, a pure descriptive report, and I was not going to make any causal determinations whether or not uh, Medicaid expansion was the, re- the reason for any differences in the utilization between these two these uh, two time periods, 2013, 2014, and or 2012 and 2013, and 2014 and 2015. Actually, when I presented this paper at the as a poster at the CoStar meeting, which is a uh, APTA sponsored, um, a Foundation for Physical Therapy sponsored research center on health services training and research. I had a lot of interaction with researchers there that really introduced me to this method. Um, mm. And so as a result, I redid the analysis. And so basically the differences and differences approach uh, is calculating odds ratios. Um, and this was just the likelihood of having a therapy visit uh, uh, con- between two time periods. This was two t- before Medicaid expansion 2012 and 2013, and then mm-hmm. after Medicaid expansion uh 2014 and 2015 and the reason why there was two-year time periods is because there's a relative there's a relatively low incidence of therapy utilization in the data set so by combining two years together you get a larger sample size but to Uh do so it allows you to to help to determine treatment effect so basically you're look even though uh you're looking at the growth and utilization between those uh, year periods you're able to determine how much what what was the effect of the Medicaid expansion um, mm. on uh, uh, on the likelihood of a therapy visit in the after, in the in the two year period following the expansion in 2014 and 2015? Okay, and the the gross numbers ultimately that you come up with they're they're quite quite impressive. Uh, talking about uh, 788 plus uh, thousand more Americans receiving uh, therapy services, which translates to a boost. 
of 41 percent of the Medicaid population more uh, access to uh, ambulatory uh, therapy services. You know, that that degree of increased utilization, uh, was that in line with what you were expecting or were you surprised by the magnitude as well? No, I was surprised by the magnitude of growth. Um, there was a, uh, and although the overall percentage of the Medicaid population with an ambulatory therapy visit is still below the overall U.S. population. So, for example, I mentioned sure. before about four and a half percent of the U.S. population will have a visit each year. Um, the percentage of the Medicaid population, even after expansion, with a visit was uh, roughly about 3.6%. So it's, and it's probably a population that if anything needs more therapy services, one might imagine, given the uh, high disability prevalence uh, rate and so forth, yet overall they're utilizing it less. It is fascinating you talk about the demographics of folks who use uh, ambulatory therapy services and it, they tend to be, I gather, um, whiter and more educated and uh, that, that type of thing, higher incomes and so forth. Right. Um, and you know, everybody can use it, of course, but but it's but it's probably more uh, folks who have lower incomes and uh, minority populations and that type of thing who need desperately need more access to that service, but but don't don't have it then. But prior to Medicaid expansion, and still don't have enough of it now. Correct. Well, the the odds ratio, if for a person uh, with Medicaid versus a person with not without Medicaid, their odds of having a therapy visit in a year is about forty four percent less. Um, wow. it's, so there's, this is still a population that's not, uh, utilizing therapy services, um, at the same rate as, uh, the non-Medicaid population. So, um, you know, it's, uh, yeah, a big bucket to be filled there. Uh, Medicaid expansion has helped, uh, some, but, um, certainly has, uh, not uh, been entirely transformative. You talk about the fact that, um, with this type of data set, I mean, there's not enough numbers there to really dig into what's happening in this state versus that state and subpopulations of patients in the Medicaid program and so forth. Um, but uh, but nonetheless, you were able to draw out this trend of, of something in uh, expanding utilization more in Western states in particular. And why is that? Well, I, th- I surmise that it had to do with the m- many more states in the Western U.S. and that census region had it gone ahead and expanded Medicaid versus states in the Midwest, for example, in the South. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was just, that's just, uh, you know, a uh, potential reason for the, it's very difficult to get to the, with this kind of research to get to uh, uh, making specific determinants because you can't make state by state, state to state comparisons. Um, because mm-hmm. the data set doesn't support it. And also the fact that because therapy services are a state option benefit in Medicaid, they vary from state to state as far as the, the eligibility criteria and also the types of services that are covered for therapy in the, in the Medicaid program. So it makes between state comparisons really, really, really difficult. Uh, yeah, and let's, let's talk more about that because I'm not sure I quite understand. So even under uh, Medicaid expansion, it doesn't demand specifically what each state has to do within their Medicaid service exactly everything that they cover or not. Uh, whatever they offer, though, they have to offer up to this 138% of the, the, uh, the federal poverty line if they're going to expand it. Is that the basic idea? That's correct, because uh, therapy services are a state option benefit. They're not a mandatory benefit in Medicaid. So um, that does affect uh, for example, some states may not may not pay for outpatient or ambulatory therapy. They may only cover it in inpatient or in, in other more facility-based environments. 
Um, so it, it varies from state to state as far as how their Medicaid plans have been developed and uh, what the resources they're going to expend. So again, that makes it really difficult to begin to do comparisons as far as the effect of specific policy changes on utilization or access. Now, did you get any sense from uh, looking at these numbers that there was a bump in just uh, outside of the Medicaid program that while you know, ambulatory therapy services seems to be growing year on year, um, could, could you tell, or have you not done that, that level of analysis, whether there's increased utilization amongst exchange plans and you know private insurance plans and so forth, perhaps because more people are getting access through uh, the ACA uh, expansion of access to those types of insurance plans? Uh, no, although I'm this, this study focused specifically on Medicaid, and it's specifically focused on these two two-year periods. Um, mm -hmm. these data sets, I'm always working two years behind. So the government reports, sure. uh, the data sets, for example, the data for 2017 just came out in August. And so, um, we're getting to the point now where probably we have enough data that we can begin to make some, maybe have some other, uh, create to develop some other studies that will begin looking at those kinds of questions. You mentioned in here uh, this uh, famous Medicaid restriction for uh, that single men can't get access and people in child childless households and so forth. To what degree did that change after the Affordable Care Act? Is that that only change in states that opted to expand, or did that change for all states? No, that changed with states that opted to expand. So, single men and childless couples are typically uh, excluded from Medicaid programs prior to expansion, but the, with the expansion program and the income-based eligibility criteria expanding up to 138% of federal poverty level, then all those people were, 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 were eligible for Medicaid insurance. I see. Okay. And certainly in terms of the broader context, um, you mentioned the fact that there are access issues generally that just because folks have more uh, Medicaid coverage doesn't necessarily mean that there are more cl enough clinicians to, to treat those people. And that uh, I know you've done some work on the allocation of uh, uh, PTs and OTs and uh, other therapists for what's required in the U.S. population and so forth. And um, in, terms of, in terms of that, that aspect, uh, that aspect of the disparity from the Medicaid uh, program. I don't know. Do you have comment on that generally, or does the study help inform that? Well, the previous work I'd done on, um, I looked specifically at people with arthritis and access to therapy services and was able to demonstrate a disparity for uh, Hispanic American and African American populations. And at least looking at the effect of insurance or lack of insurance, um, the disparity went away or it would decrease significantly for Hispanic Americans once they were insured, but persisted for African Americans. And so that's actually one of the, perhaps a follow-up study I might be doing uh, in this area to see, did Medicaid expansion um, have an effect on access to outpatient therapy care for, uh, for African Americans? At least based on that previous report, I would say no, that it may persist. Which may, which may mean that it exists for other structural reasons, uh, locations of clinics, hours. There could be other reasons why people um, cannot access therapy services. 
In terms of your your work generally, um, I, I definitely see where this this fits, and um, uh, I see you've got your kind of next plan follow up study with regards to minority access and so forth. And I think it's it's important generally for the for the field. I feel like it's important broadly too. This to me uh, screams as a study that that ought to get some healthcare journalist attention. I think as well from the fact that uh, it speaks to a, a huge change uh, in this level of access for for part of healthcare that perhaps people don't think about generally enough. We certainly all think about it being in rehabilitation, but what does that mean at the ground level, at the street level, for those people for having access to more uh, therapy services? Hopefully, it, it means that it's translating into into more functional improvement and less cost for you know burden of society generally and improved quality of life and less pain and all these types of things, which obviously this study at this um, macro level can't dig into each one of those. But but there's certainly uh, you know some creative uh, New York Times journalists can look at individual cases and talk to people who now have access who didn't and look at your statistics and so forth and tell a broader story. About something that's that's changing in, in healthcare, uh, I don't know if you if you've gotten any such calls yet, but uh, but I, I certainly hope that you do. Well, that would I think this is a very important population to study, and uh, that we should be continuing to work on improving access and utilization uh, for 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 populations that historically have not access, had access to these types of services. So yeah, I think I think it's kind of a a good news type of healthcare story generally. Um, that um, you know, certainly, folks listening to this podcast will get the word about it, and uh, we'll try to to spread the word about the paper uh, generally. Um, so, in terms of uh, what you envision uh, doing doing next, and and what you've done uh, previously, do you feel like uh, this this needs to inform healthcare policymakers at at any level in terms of what it means for the for the Medicaid uh, program generally? And how thing how resources ought to be allocated and so forth. Well, I think this what this report does say is that I think one of the intents of the uh, uh, Affordable Care Act was to uh, positively impact uh, the rates of uninsurance and uh, to improve uh, access and utilization of care for populations that have historically not been able to uh, to uh, uh, receive services. And I think that. Um, the report does state that this has worked. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's something, uh, and it uh, uh, and it's uh, yeah one of those uh, rare redeeming bright shining lights that uh, we don't get enough of nowadays. So I appreciate you for that, <laughs> um, and and glad to see it in the archives. Um, well, uh, Dr. Sandstrom, thanks for your time today. I've been very uh, nice talking with you. Yeah, nice chatting with you. Dr. Nascimento is a PhD physiotherapist. Uh, she is in clinical practice, but continues to uh, research and teach. Uh, this study, which she has published in the Archives of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation, is entitled, Abstracts of Low Back Pain Trials Are Poorly Reported, Contain Spin of Information, and Are Inconsistent with the Full Text, an Overview Study. Uh, Dr. Nascimento did this work uh, while pursuing her PhD at the Universidad Sadad de Sao Paulo 
and uh, we're thrilled to have her on the Rehab Cast today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me. <laughs> you bet. Well, uh, you know, this is, um, uh, I guess, a, a bit a bit edgy. Obviously, it is uh, critiquing the field, which it does appear to need some critique. Um, you you yep. point out how important. Um, you know, low back pain is kind of the bread and butter of physiotherapy and uh, a lot of uh, rehabilitation medicines and all these trials that are being done uh, are incredibly important and, and how they're reported and have a huge impact on clinical practice. But but you have you have found that uh, we're definitely having some major communication failures here, and in particular, given how important abstracts are. I guess just start by telling us um, about uh, kind of the background of the study, why you decided to, to do this, and kind of your thoughts about uh, the importance of, uh, of abstracts and what's too often missing there. Yeah, sure. Um, so yeah, exactly. Um, first of all, we um, uh, decided uh, studying is th this subject because we are part of a group of low back pain. So we have, mm -hmm. um, in this university, we have about 40 people in this uh, group study. Uh, uh, how can I say? This study group. And then mm -hmm. um, we decided to study clinical methodology research, uh, especially focused on abstracts, because we saw that uh, abstracts, we know that abstracts are um, very important for clinic clinicians. Uh, once they take decisions and clinical decisions based on abstracts, and mm -hmm. um, sometimes, uh, many times, the abstracts of the study is the only source available for a clinician to clarify a question about a clinical decision to take with a patient. And um, if we consider that this abstract is inadequately reported or has some kind of overestimated interpretation of the results, um, the clinician might take a poor clinical decision. So mm -hmm. that was the main reason why we thought we have to study this, this type of um, studies, and especially their abstracts. Um, then we selected a sample to study uh, focused on low back pain because it's uh, what the our group is mainly focused on, mm -hmm. and we found this incredible and uh, kind of sad <laughs> result because we yeah. we expected more, you know, especially because we we did some of the researches in in this uh, in the sample, and uh, we. Now we pay more attention in writing our our abstracts, and we we yeah. keep giving this advice. So, so it's it's changed your group, at exactly. Least. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, y'all y'all pulled out uh, two hundred, uh, you know, good quality randomized uh, low back pain trials that are that are being done from twenty ten to twenty fifteen, and you you use this uh, physiotherapy evidence database, Pedro. Um, how come uh, you use that rather than, say, a, a PubMed or Medline search? Uh, what do you find is advantageous to use that particular database to, to call these studies from? Yeah, um, this database is, the, is one of the main databases in physiotherapy, and they, mm -hmm. they get their trials to be included there uh, from PubMed and also from Medline and all the main databases. And uh, um, to be included in Pedro, uh, the clinical trials must have at least one intervention that is related to physiotherapy. 
So we mm -hmm. found it would be more accurate to find all the studies related to physiotherapy, which were already, um, uh, would be already included in PubMed, for example. So okay. uh, we found it would be easier also to, to include the studies that we were more interested on. Now, you, uh, you guys relied on two uh, chief tools, the Consolidated Standards of Reporting Trials, uh, Consort A, which is a, a checklist of things that ought to be reported and, you know, the abstracts and bodies of uh, randomized trials, and the SPIN checklist as well. Uh, tell us about those and, and why you decided to use those principal measures. Yeah, sure. Uh, so we decided to use the Consort for Abstracts which is uh, an extension of the consort checklist. Use it to um, uh, check each item of, of reporting in randomized controlled trials. So they talk about reporting of uh, the objective of the study, the methods of the study, and what should be reported in each section of the study, the results, interpretation, and so on. And the consort for abstracts, this checklist, is an extension of uh, these uh, reporting guidelines. And uh, once it has um, some items, it's, uh, there are 17 items, uh, the, the original one. We used 15 because we thought two of them uh, were not um, relevant to our study, to what we were evaluating. We explained a bit better in, in the article. And um, we thought we could use this checklist in the abstract uh, against the full text also to check for consistency of information. So we didn't use the consort, the original consort for full text for the full text because we wanted to see the consistency between abstract and full text. And then we checked the, uh, the same information with the same tool, which was the, the consort for abstracts. And the other one, um, the SPIN checklist, we based the, the checklist on a study that ana analyzed um, interpretation in randomized controlled trials. And they checked information related to results and interpretation, mainly uh, to see if the interpretation was correct uh, in mm -hmm. relation to these results. And they saw these seven ma main items which were always overstating information of the results or omitting some information such as the primary outcome or adverse events. And we thought it could be a good uh, source of checklist or a good source of information uh, for us to um, evaluate the interpretation of the abstracts and the interpretation of the study and also compare the one with the, the other to see the consistency between abstract and full text. I see, yeah. And let me read the SPIN checklist for people because I think it's particularly interesting just to kind of keep in mind what we're talking about here. So the SPIN checklist includes um, omission of the primary outcome uh, of the study, uh, fail to mention adverse events, as you mentioned, selective reporting of the outcomes, failing to report statistically non-significant outcomes, which you think a fair amount of trials would have, a focus on statistically significant outcomes, um, uh, and an over-enthusiastic interpretation of the outcomes. Yeah. And then finally, uh, the specific recommendation of a treatment, which uh, obviously most trials are going to be hard-pressed to do for anything outside of their very narrow 
niche and uh, and usually would probably I mean I suppose um, recommendation of a treatment is a good is a good flag that uh, people are over touting their their study a little bit I, I suppose narrowly it might be theoretically possible that someone has some type of direct recommendation for what they view as a really high quality trial but that's going to be pretty rare and far between yeah that's true um, it, it, it's very common to, to happen. Um, we, we see a negative outcome that is uh, usually not reported correctly, and then we see that they recommend the treatment even if they had a negative outcome. It's very common, oh, wow. especially, yeah, <laughs> it's very common. It, and it's not only in low back pain, unfortunately. Um, uh, we did also a systematic review that we are working on uh, the discussion and final final co conclusions. But we did a systematic review also talking about all the fields in healthcare, and we found very similar things, uh, similar results to to the ones in low back pain field. I see, and yeah. what, and of course, it seems like one of your some of what you're pointing out here, though, it looks like. Uh, the low back pain field is doing a bit a bit worse and some of the completeness of these abstracts and the spin checklist, at least if I'm reading this um, correctly, in terms of the consort uh, criteria, uh, what you were reviewing, uh, is, the score is 5.1 on the 17-point scale. In many other fields, at least those that you named general medicine, oncology, infectious disease, they're scoring more like, um, let's see, 12.1. Uh, 9.9 .9 on a slightly higher scale, 7.7. Yeah. yeah, yeah, they are a bit higher depending on, on the healthcare mm -hmm. field. Uh, but some are even oh, wow. worse okay. as well. Uh, yeah, wow. <laughs> but yeah, they are. Um, uh, what we think is that, especially talking about reporting and consistency between abstract and full text, is that they are easy to correct and they should be. A hundred percent, let's say, because we already have a checklist to do that. It's easy to follow the checklist, and also the consistency between abstract and full text. You just have to report what is in uh, what is written in the full text. You know. Yes. So it should be easy. It should be a hundred percent. It should be uh, fifteen points on a fifteen point scale. You know. Uh, that's why we, we get very surprised with the with the results in all the fields. Yes, I suppose maybe maybe you think too many people are viewing the abstract as a form of advertisement for the contents of the paper. It's like this is why you ought to read our yeah. paper. Here are these highlights. You know? I agree, and it, it's very common in um, any sort of media out there because you see a title that's very over enthusiastic when you read the the paper the, or the article even if it's only in the news in, in newspaper or something yeah. you see sometimes that it's not related with the with the shocking title yes yeah oh yeah uh, famously so many things done done on mice that uh, actually uh, you would think it was a human trial from the way it's, uh, it it begins the the daily news but yeah um, uh, and in terms of, of spin uh, uh, a rather embarrassing amount of spin and low back pain trials compared to you you talked about in general medicine it's somewhat uh, frequent as well 41 percent of abstracts from another study reported uh, some type of spin found in there, but uh, you actually found 98% uh, of the abstracts you reviewed had at least one item of spin? Yeah, uh, I think this uh, scary number 
is due to mainly the, um, the second item, which is related to omission of adverse events. In the, in the case of physical therapy field, it's not that common for us to, to report an adverse event. It's more usual to uh, the medical area because of uh, medication and surgeries and everything. Um, it's very uh, uncommon to, to have an adverse event with a physical therapy treatment. But the thing is that I think we should report that there was no adverse event whether, rather than not saying anything. So lots of the trials lost some points because of that. They didn't even report any adverse event. But as I said, it's not that common in physiotherapy to have an adverse event. So for that reason, they lost some points. But if you see the table, one of the tables that really... Uh, says all oh, the percentages of each item. You can see that the other ones were higher as well, the other items in the SPIN checklist. So it's still disappointing anyway. We have to, to improve that. <laughs> now, in terms of some of the recommendations, uh, other folks have made some recommendations before, and you have uh, recited some of those. One one that you mentioned in particular uh, that, you, that you all suggested was Increasing the word count, perhaps, on the abstracts so people are having trouble fitting everything in, which I'm sure a lot of authors would be happy yeah. with. There's certainly no, no shortage of space on the Internet or what have you. But uh, do you find that fairly common, that there, there are quite severe word length restrictions on abstracts? Yeah, I do. Um, I see lots of colleagues of mine and even in congresses, conferences, when I talk about this subject, uh, people struggle a lot with uh, number of words in the abstract, sometimes even in the full text as well. But because mm -hmm. the abstract is the main thing, that the first thing that you read when you read an article, um, I think it's kind of important to, to have the main messages there. And once mm -hmm. we have a reporting guideline to, to use to write the abstract, we should follow it and then if we have enough numbers to write the information there, it's even better. And we did also an association to uh, better uh, reporting quality of abstracts with some characteristics mm -hmm. of journals and the articles as well. And we found that higher uh, reporting quality of abstracts was associated with higher number of words in the abstract. So it mm -hmm. would make sense to, sense yeah, to exactly. So it would make sense also to try to uh, talk to journal editors and spread the word to try to increase the number or be more flexible with the number of words in the abstracts so the authors can explain better what was done in the study. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm definitely on board with you for that, and uh, hopefully the the word gets out. I mean, uh, you can see where those types of severe restrictions came from, you know, back in the day with um, everything from short posters to conference proceedings to, you know, the printed journals and stuff. But but certainly nowadays with the Internet, it's not an issue. Yeah. I suppose um, in terms of uh, the next phase for you, you're talking about you're doing more of a systemic approach looking at a variety of different fields of medicine beyond just physiotherapy. Yes, yes, we are. We did a systematic, um, we performed a systematic review uh, in the end of last year, we finished um, about some months ago, and we included studies like this one that was published in the archives. 
So it, there were studies that analyzed randomized controlled trials or systematic reviews and analyzed especially the abstract of this, this type of studies. So we included uh, in total 42 studies that analyzed this, this type of studies. And we included everything in healthcare. So they were in uh, oncology, psychiatry, uh, nursing, we found physiotherapy, we found uh, several healthcare areas, uh, different areas. And mm. there were some differences between one and another, but as I told you before, all of them have some inconsistencies, all of them present some spin of information, all of them uh, present some kind of poor reporting as well, even if um, some of them were kind of good, let's say uh, 70% with good reporting, it's still not 100 if we consider that should be very consistent, yes. right? So uh, the main point is that we, th we think that um, all the areas should uh, phrase this, should uh, highlight the importance of a better and more strict methodological and reporting standards for the journals and maybe uh, work on the flexibility of words allowed in the abstract and check for consistency between abstract and full text, check for right interpretation of the results and be careful not to do anything. And I think it's basically that, you know, to try to improve the quality of uh, clinical research in general. Well, I think it's a very timely study and series of studies now that you're that you're doing, and uh, I think certainly important for the rehabilitation field to to see that it has this problem as well. Uh, perhaps even more so, at least in what you're seeing in some of the abstracts that you guys have have reviewed thus far, at least with low back pain, and uh, and timely I say because you know at this point I think at least in the United States, but I imagine they're in Brazil uh, as well. People are almost mentally exhausted with. Um, Miscommunication, yeah. uh, you know, uh, things that are presented as true that are not. Uh, uh, the constant stream of yeah, health news headlines that turn out not to be anything important and so forth. And it seems to be at this point starting to damage the credibility of Fine. science generally. Yeah, exactly. I agree. I totally agree. Well, so uh, important work. Uh, I'm glad that uh, the listeners of the podcast got to hear a little bit more about it. And by all means, uh, go to the journal itself and read this full paper. And, and as far as I can tell, it looks like your your abstract does correlate with the paper. Congrats, <laughs> <Yeah>. so. <laughs> thank you. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Um, well, thank you for joining us today, Dr. Nascimento, and uh, I appreciate your thank time. Thank you very much. It was very good. And thank you for your time as well. And that's it for this issue of the RehabCast. Thanks for joining us. The 2019 annual conference in Chicago is now right around the corner. See you there. Join us in Chicago this fall for ACRM 2019, the largest interdisciplinary rehabilitation conference in the world. The main core conference and pre-conference instructional courses deliver six jam-packed days of evidence-based educational content for the whole rehab team, as well as patients and their caregivers. Please visit acrm.org for more information and follow hashtag ACRM2019.
2019.